Has anything terrible ever happened to you? It's a simple question. Has your life sucked? Tell her the truth. There is no truth. Drag out our story. Maybe all we've done is make a girl cry. She's talking about what happened. That's huge. You know, when I first created Third Degree Mind, and, and even in the, the months leading up to it, once I made the decision that I was going to do this and I was going to create this podcast, I did a lot of research in the area of how to make a successful podcast, how to grow an audience, how to put out relevant content for that audience. I read a lot of articles. I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I talked to other people that I knew that either are avid podcast listeners or they create podcasts and I talk to different people to figure out what what they think is important and how do you capture the attention of people and how do you keep that same group of people coming back every every week for the next episode and one of the most consistent things that I found across the board and in how do you be successful basically the most important or most consistent thing that I saw from everywhere everything that I read was that as a when you create a podcast you have to be consistent and predictable you have to be putting out content on a regular basis if you say that's once a week then you have to do it once a week if you say once a month it's got to be once a month it's got to be consistent and predictable and what's frustrating to me is that something so simple like that Simply being consistent and predictable has proven to be one of the most difficult things for me to accomplish. And if you've been following Third Degree Mind, if you've been part of that regular growing audience for the last couple of months, you probably know that. You know that I'm not very consistent. I'm not very predictable. You never know when the next episode's coming out. Even if I tell you that it's a week from now or two weeks from now, you're probably sitting there like, yeah, okay, we'll see. I get Facebook messages or posts on the Facebook page about, you know, when, when's the next episode coming up? I got I got one uh, about a week ago that said something like, I assuming because of the recent hiatus and because you're we haven't heard anything from you, I'm, I'm assuming third degree mind is no more. And just reading that message kind of hit kind of hit me hard because I was like, no, it's it's still here. I'm still trying to do it. It's just different things in life have forced me uh, to put this on the back burner sometimes. And that is really difficult for me because I would love to be that consistent and predictable podcast that people can count on. And, you know, we live in such a fickle society, especially here in America. Millennials, no attention span, it's like if I tell you that I'm going to be back next week with the next episode and I'm not there exactly seven days after I said that or after that person heard that, they move on to something else and they, they, don't, they don't ever come back to Third Degree Mind then. And that's kind of intimidating to me. Like I said, that's 
something that I knew from the beginning that if I was going to make a podcast, if I was seriously going to do this, I need to make it a priority to be consistent. And I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I haven't figured out how to balance third degree mind with the rest of my life. And that's upsetting, to be honest with you. It's it's upsetting that it's been around for several months now. And sometimes I do a really good job and I'll go a few weeks pushing out a new episode every week on the dot, just like I'd say just like I say that I'm trying to do. And then other times it's like, well, where the hell is he? But I just want you to know, and again, I don't I don't even know if this means anything because I don't know if my word even has any credibility or any merit anymore. But third degree mind is not just gonna vanish. I wouldn't I I wouldn't be the type to do that. I'm always thinking about new content, new things to talk about on the program. I'm always thinking about when when am I gonna have time to record again. The main issue is the time commitment. You know, if I'm putting out a 60-minute episode, that's more than just one hour of my day. An hour of a podcast episode takes four, maybe five hours uh, to, to do. It, it's, it's a lot of recording. It's a lot of re-recording, listening to how it sounds, listening to make sure that I'm saying what I want to say. Going back and changing some things, like I said, re-recording. It involves a lot of prep time. I try to figure out what what I'm what I'm wanting to talk about and draw out an outline, things like that, things that uh, so that I'm not just sitting here rambling. Like I said, try not to sit here and ramble. I know that sometimes I do. And one of the most frustrating things is I have a lot of issues with my computer. And I haven't I haven't gotten the budget yet to get a new one or a better one, more RAM or something. See, I, I, I record in this program called Audacity and I use a USB microphone and sometimes sometimes it works perfectly. There's no audio issues, none of that. And then other times I like today actually. So what we're six and a half minutes into this episode right now, but I've been spending the last two hours trying to get recording going and I've re-recorded a couple parts of this little speech or soapbox of mine right now several times because for whatever reason I, I can't fix the audio glitch problem that I've been experiencing for months now. Sometimes it works just fine. And I can't I play around with different settings. I I play around with, with what else is going on on my computer. I try to close all the other programs and all kinds of different stuff that I, I try to do to make the recording. Uh, as good as I as good as I can, and and actually, just about ten minutes ago, I I realized just in my troubleshooting, I plugged the USB microphone into a different USB port. And now I seem to not be having any issues at all. And of course, you know, simple diagnosing of that. I I, I closed out of the program again. I switched the uh, the microphone back to the original jack that I thought was having the issues, and I have the issues again. So I think. I think maybe I've solved that problem. It might just be a faulty jack on my on my computer. I I don't know. Super annoying if that's really what it is. I hope it is because if it is that that'll save a lot of time. And every every time I start recording and I play around with settings and stuff and 
I waste so much time doing that. Like I said, if I'm putting out an hour a long episode, it's easily going to be four to five hours of work when you factor in prep time, recording, re-recording, audio problems that I can't seem to overcome. Hopefully that part is done, though. Hopefully that part is done. Well, anyways, welcome to Third Degree Mind. Thank you for downloading this week's episode. Uh, if you if you have been a part of our audience since the beginning, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you a lot uh, for still being here, even dis- despite the fact that I'm obviously not overly consistent. I try really hard to be a weekly podcast, but as I've been talking about, we all know that doesn't really happen. But anyways. Nonetheless, thank you for still sticking around and still downloading new episodes when they, when they do come out. I hope you're still subscribed. If you're not, you can look us up on the Apple iTunes store. Subscribe there. Third Degree Mind, you can look us up on Podbean, podbean.com, Third Degree Mind, same thing. And of course, we have a Facebook page, Third Degree Mind, on Facebook as well. Like or follow us on there. You can, you can always reach out to me uh, on the Facebook page as well. That's the easiest way to get in touch with me. I posted something on Facebook a, a few days ago that I was looking at the idea of phobias and a, different anxieties that, that people have, and that's that's kind of been a fascination of mine for a long time. I have a bunch of kind of odd uh, odd phobias or anxieties, things like that, and as I do a little bit of research, I, I start to see that some of those things are, are somewhat common. Not the exact phobia, but the, the existence of a significant number of phobias or anxiety, things that induce anxiety or stress, I've realized that that's kind of a common theme with people that have some form of a personality disorder. Uh, and I, I, I have a borderline personality disorder, which is one of the more, uh, I guess it's one of the more common ones. It's one of those things that, from what I understand, is it's often overdiagnosed, but it's also often underdiagnosed. So you have people that have this condition that are underdiagnosed either because they don't seek treatment or because mental health mental health professionals aren't familiar with it or aren't familiar with how to diagnose it. So they diagnose it as bipolar disorder. That's what happens most frequently. So it's underdiagnosed in that sense. But in another sense, it, it gets overdiagnosed because if you go to certain mental health professionals that are familiar with it, Sometimes they're too familiar with it to the point that they're everybody that they talk to that comes in that has any type of emotional problem, depression problem, some type of disorder there, uh, and they might have bipolar disorder, all these things that are somewhat similar, they have similar characteristics, and this mental health professional might just slap the label of borderline personality disorder on all of them when that's not really the case. So it's kind of interesting. It's uh, it it kind of reminds me of ADHD, childhood ADHD, because uh, that's another thing that even mental health professionals will admit that it's both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed. And you kind of hear that, and you're like, "Well, what is what the hell does that mean? Is it overdiagnosed or under? What, what does that mean?" And and it means just just how it sounds. There's a lot of people with that diagnosis label that actually don't have it, but there's just mental health professionals that are just super quick to slap that label on someone because that's the easy kind of the easy out is oh he has a oh he's acting out okay it must be ADHD but then it's underdiagnosed at the same time because there's lots of kids that have it that 
Maybe maybe their parents don't agree that it's a real disorder. Maybe maybe uh, they have it, but it's a mild form, and maybe it's just not noticeable or it doesn't manifest in the same ways. A bunch of different things like that, but it's, you know, a lot of these mental health conditions are both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed. But anyways, kind of back to, to phobias, what, what I was... What I was saying there is that it seems that a lot of people with different disorders, especially personality disorders, have a lot of unusual uh, anxieties or different things that induce stress, uh, different phobias, things like that. And it's it's kind of fascinating to me. So we're definitely going to talk a little bit about that today. I'm going to share a few of a few of mine that I've had. Uh, a lot of them I don't really share with people because a lot of a couple of them are actually really embarrassing. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about those uh, a little bit later. Uh, I want to first kind of talk about different direction, uh, something that I stumbled on, stumbled on uh, while I was scro- scrolling through uh, Facebook. You know how like if you have your iPhone or Android or whatever and you're, you're looking at the Facebook home and you see all kinds of, uh, as you scroll, you might see like a bunch of different things on your newsfeed that your friends have shared or posted or whatever. And the more friends you have, the more it becomes difficult to, to go back and, and find something that you saw maybe yesterday. If something came up in your newsfeed yesterday that you liked, but you didn't bookmark it or save it or share it yourself or anything like that, and you don't remember who shared it, and then you go back the next day trying to find it, it's like nearly impossible, especially if you have a lot of Facebook friends. Um, I, don't, I, I have, I don't know, 20, maybe 2,500 uh, friends on Facebook but you know most of those people are just they're just online friends. I've talked a little bit about that in the past about having having a big social circle on these social networks, but you know in real life I have I could probably count all my close friends on on one hand, acquaintances and close friends combined probably two hands. So we're talking about less than 10 people and yet I have literally thousands of Facebook friends and it's just kind of kind of interesting, but so anyways, yeah, when I find something on Facebook that I really like, I have to like either screenshot it or make a mental note of which one of my Facebook friends shared that. So if I want to see it again, I can go back on their page and, and find it on their page because it's the odds of it showing up on my newsfeed the second day, excuse me, the odds of it showing up on that newsfeed, you know, a second day in a row is like slim to none. So anyways, one of my friends shared this uh, a couple days ago that... I really liked, and the article caught my attention because the title of it is The Love of Your Life Will Only Come After the Mistake of Your Life, and I thought that's really intriguing, and so of course I clicked on it and opened it and read it, and it's it's a super good article, and it's something that I definitely wanted to talk about because it talks about the fact that uh, our mistakes are what shape our lives, and we, I've talked a little bit about regret on the program before, and I don't want you to ever regret anything that you do, any decisions that you make, if you were in a bad relationship at one point, if you were with someone that you shouldn't have been with, or you saw all the red flags and you stayed with them anyways and your life just continued to spiral out of control because you refused to leave this person or, or whatever the case is, you can't regret those decisions and that's that's kind of what this article talks about is if you go through life living in regret, it's just going to lead to depression. It's it's going to lead to uh, all kinds of issues that you really, you, you really can avoid if you just don't 
have that regret. So what do you do when you make a mistake? And you have to recognize, like, like I just said, like what this title says, the love of your life will only come after the mistake of your life. The author here says, perhaps our mistakes are what shape our lives. We need to get our hearts broken first so that a new light can come in. Uh, maybe we need to be broken in order to become whole. Painful love is the worst kind of love. One of my favorite quotes from this article is, because it's through the most painful experiences that we learn the most valuable lessons. And then it goes on, it's talking about mistakes and, and kind of this idea of regret. And it's it, it says, you know what, we all make mistakes. But then a little later it says, maybe there's no such thing as a mistake, especially if that mistake teaches you something. It teaches you something essential about who you are, or who, who you love, what hurts us, what you want out of life, all kinds of different things like that. You can learn so many lessons. And when I look at my own life, I look at my failed marriage. You know, I was with her for 10 years, a, an important part of my history. You know, I'm not even 30 years old yet. And I was with this girl for over a third of my life and especially my adult life. I, I'm 29. I was with her from the time I was, I don't know, 16 to 26, give or take, 17 to 26, 27, so 9, 10 years. So an important part of my early adult life was spent with her. The only part of my life that was not, that she's not a part of is at least in the same capacity, is is right now, you know, recent. I've been single about three and a half years now. So that time. And then my teenage years, when if you look at your own teenage years, you know that you're not even the same person today as you were when you were a teenager. If you're still a teenager and you're just listening to this podcast, sorry, not trying to offend you, but you should know that whoever you are right now, whoever you think you are, whatever you think you know about life and your own personality and I can promise you that if you talk to anyone in their late 20s, early 30s, or beyond, they're all going to tell you that they're very different now than what they were as a teenager and they, they didn't understand themselves because you have to go through a certain amount of life experience. You have to go through some relationships that suck, that fail. You have to go through those problems in life in order to grow from them. So this article makes that interesting point that maybe there is no such thing as a mistake because it taught you something essential about who you are. Even though we didn't want that love to end, perhaps it was destined to happen. Now, I'm not one to believe too much in destiny. I don't really believe in that. I kind of fall more into the chance and chaos worldview, where I don't really believe in fate and stuff like that. But one thing I do believe in is that we need to take it upon ourselves to learn from all these experiences, because... Your past experiences, the good and the bad, the ugly, the miserable, the heartbreaks, and of course, the, all the good too. All the good things in your life up that brought you up till now. All those experiences collectively are who you are today. So if you're only 15 years old, you don't have a lot of experiences to draw on. And that's why teenagers go through a lot of emotional struggles too. Because they're they're having identity issues that they're trying, they're they're at that cross between childhood and adolescence and adulthood. Who are they going to be for the rest of their lives? Who are they? 
That's one of the most difficult things that's running through a teenager's mind. I know it was definitely running through my mind as a teenager and, and through my early 20s, especially as my marriage started to go downhill and my life was spiraling out of control. And people ask me, you know, like, for example, I had a coworker a little while ago that didn't really know me that well. He's kind of new to my uh, new to my job, and and he he was just kind of we were just BSing a little bit, and uh, he asked if I was married or had kids, and I said no, I have a daughter, but I'm divorced. And his first response is the typical response is, "Oh my God, I'm sorry." No, I'm I'm not. I'm not sorry. Number one, I'm the one that wanted the divorce. Number one, I'm the one that pulled the pin. But more important than that, it's that I don't regret the decisions and the experiences that I went through. There's a lot of things that make even that horrible time in my life beneficial to me because I can sit here today and I know that I'm a much stronger person because of what I went through. I know more. I know a lot more about what I want out of life. I know what I'm looking for in another human being. I know what I'm not going to put up with ever again. And you take all those experiences and, and combine them, like I said, collectively, that is who I am today. So for me to sit here and say that I regret the decision to stay with her as long as I did, well, that would mean that I'd have to say that I'm not happy with who I am or I don't like who I became because of it. But none of that is true. I didn't like I don't like the decisions that I made. Absolutely. But the other big thing too is I got a daughter out of it. The first time I felt like I should divorce her was not even a year into our marriage. We still lived in Wisconsin. Hadn't moved out to Las Vegas yet. That was the first time divorce entered my mind as a serious possibility because of ongoing affairs that were going on and cheating and all that. You can listen to the very first episode of Third Degree Mind for a little bit more of, a, of the story that happened in, uh, during my marriage there. But if I had left her at that time, I may have never ended up in Las Vegas at all. She was a huge driving factor for why I came to Las Vegas. The job I work now, she was a huge driving factor and motivator for getting into the career field that I'm in. She was a huge driving factor for a lot of major decisions that happened in my life. And of course now, one of the most important things in my life is the fact that I'm a father. And she gave me that. I could sit here all day and tell you that I, I hate her or she's this horrible person that tried to ruin my life and this and that and she wanted me dead and I could say all those things but if any of those were true then that would mean that I wouldn't have gotten a daughter out of it you know so you have that's how you have to look at life you have to look at it as just this combination this this collection of experiences good bad and that's who you are today is a collection, a melting pot of all those experiences combined. That's who you are today, right now in 2018. You can't regret those past decisions. This article 
says, um, you know, he's he, the author's talking about mistakes, mistakes made, and says, you know, I think about a relationship that was toxic, a relationship that we should have left a long time ago, a long time before it inevitably went south and broke our heart. But for some reason, we couldn't let go. It was not because that person was right, was right for us, but because that was all supposed to happen so that we can learn what true love really is. If you're in a point if you're in a point in your life and I'm not so this is just my speculation but if you're in a point in your life that you're happily in love you're married to the love of your life or you're going to get married or you're just very very happy in your relationship and you believe that you're with that perfect person that soulmate if if you if you believe in that kind of thing if you're with that person I'm going to bet that you didn't just find that person out of nowhere it started somewhere, and it maybe started with a bunch of bad relationships before you found that person. And I'm going to take it a step further and say that maybe if you didn't have those bad experiences in the past, that maybe you wouldn't appreciate who you have now as much as you do. I know that if I ever ended up in a very healthy relationship, a good relationship, a happy relationship, if I ever got remarried, any of those things... Which again, I, I have no idea if I will. But if I do, I know that that would make me appreciate my past even more than I do now. Not that I'm happy for what I went through. But on some level, it's almost like I am because of the fact that I know because of what I went through. This is giving me the ability to appreciate and love this new person so much more. This new person might not have been as special to me or as important to me or I might not have seen it the same way or in the same light if I didn't have the past that I have. I've seen the bad, now I'm waiting for the good. If that makes sense. The article starts talking about healing. Healing after a bad breakup or a toxic relationship, anything like that. It says, healing is not an overnight process. It takes a lot of time, energy, and willpower to do it. It's a constant decision to untie ourselves from all the toxicity around us in that relationship and to become stronger so that disappointments won't get to us. It's the power of knowing that we can love someone, but still we can walk away from them with our head, with our head held high because we know that we deserve better and the love of our life is just around the corner expecting us to come healed and whole. And I think that's the most important part. Healing is not an overnight process. But you have to be able to do it. You have to be able to walk away from that relationship. When you're in that toxic relationship, you have to walk away with your head held high knowing that you deserve better. And the most important part here knowing that the love of your life is just around the corner expecting us to come healed and whole. If you find the love of your life and you're not healed and whole and you're just miserable and toxic and filled with regret and anger and all these negative emotions, where do you think they're going to go? They're expecting you to be happy. They're expecting you to be whole and content with your life. Because that's what they deserve. That's what makes them so special. They're not looking for... You're not going to be the love of their life if you're just filled with this anger and hate 
and jaded over your last relationship. The article closes. And when you find real love, it will raise us to greatness because that's what true love does to people. It makes them real and brings about the best in them to the surface. Some great messages in that in that article. I, like I said, I, I read it and I kind of got chills because it was exactly the types of stuff that I like talking about in this program. And it, it absolutely drives the point home. And I, I absolutely love what it says about the mistakes. That's my favorite part. My favorite part is when it talks about how maybe there's no mistakes in this world because it's not a mistake if you learn from it. And I think that's absolutely true. I could make a little mistake a hundred times, but if I don't learn anything from it and I keep making that mistake a hundred times, that's a lot worse than making one big mistake one time in your life. Think about that. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about these phobias and anxieties and stressors because I think that's a great topic. And like I said, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit uncomfortable talking about uh, my own phobias, but I definitely want to, and I definitely think it's it's beneficial. And like I said, I I really I really enjoy doing this podcast. I really enjoy talking and and explaining things or or talking about myself without feeling like there's a room full of people looking at me. Uh, some of my phobias and anxieties, like I said, they're a little embarrassing. They kind of bother me. I don't know where they come from, things like that. So uh, I, I, like, I like the idea of, of talking about it on this podcast and, and sharing those things. And if you have anything, if you have any phobias, anxieties, things that stress you out that are unusual or, or even if they're not unusual but you just, you just want to share or you think that they're beneficial to other people that maybe have those same, same similar struggles, feel free to reach out anytime. Send me a message on Facebook. Look us up on Facebook, Third Degree Mind. Send me a message there. And uh, I'd, I'd love, to, love to hear about some of, some of yours as well. So quick break. I'll be right back and then we'll talk about that. Hey, it's Jay, creator and host of Third Degree Mind. Whether you're a first-time listener or if you've been with us since the very beginning, if you enjoy listening, please don't forget to subscribe and follow our podcast for all the latest updates. One of the easiest ways to do that is in the Apple iTunes store. Just search for Third Degree Mind. If you don't use iTunes, you can look us up at thirddegreemind.podbean.com and follow us on there. Also, don't forget to look us up on Facebook, Third Degree Mind, and like our page there. You can also message me through that Facebook page if you need to reach out or if you have some feedback. Third Degree Mind is still a new podcast, so I'm always looking for feedback from our growing audience. Thanks again for being a part of that community. All right, let's talk about some unusual phobias, where they come from, some anxieties, some things that induce stress, things like that. You know, people are pretty amazing. We have an amazing psychology, and obviously everybody's different. No two people are alike. You can even look at uh, even identical twins. 
and find a number of differences between them in their in their psychology and in their personality. Physically, they're identical, exactly the same, but mentally and their psychology, their their fears, their likes, their dislikes. A lot of times, those vary significantly. You could have identical twins, and one of them's an introvert, and one of them's an extrovert. Two very very different personality types, and it's 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 fascinating that everybody is so different and you know earlier today we were talking about uh, how your experiences kind of shape who you are and it's it's the same thing with with phobias a lot of phobias not all but a lot of them come from or they stem from some type of experience in the past i was uh i was out on a date uh, a little while ago with first date all right first date with a girl a few nights ago and we were, we got onto this topic of of phobias and she told me that one of her phobias is bald black men and i thought well that's interesting and i asked her i said does that does that come from some type of experience like some type of experience that you had with a bald black man and she said well yeah actually it does i was like okay and i'm i'm this is a first date. I'm trying not to I'm trying to tote that line of not prying or not getting too personal or too intense on a first date uh while at the same time trying to trying to learn about her and and she seemed very open about it. She was the one that started the topic of phobias and I was actually not super open with her. But she told me that she ended up in when she was like 14, she ended up uh sold into sex trafficking. And I was like, holy shit. Like, in my head now, I'm thinking, like, are you are you freaking serious? Like, oh, my God. And she was like, she says she was sold into sex trafficking. She ended up in Louisiana, uh, basically kidnapped, you know, against her will. And she said she was there for, like, a year and a half or something. And I was like, oh, my God, this that's a, that's a fucking traumatic experience. Holy shit. If she's telling the truth, that is fucking traumatic. And well, she told me that one of the one of the guys that was mainly in charge of of pimping her out and holding her against her will and making her do all these things, he was a bald black man. So she said, ever since then, when she sees a bald black man, she she gets super uncomfortable, nervous, those nervous sweats, things like that. And I was like, oh my god, that's like that's like. I don't even, that's like beyond intense, especially for a first date. Like, not that she shouldn't have shared that with me. I was just, I was very quickly overwhelmed because I was expecting it to be like, oh yeah, I was, whatever. Somebody tried to rob me two years ago and he happened to be a bald black man. And so uh, now anytime I see a bald black man, that's what I think of. And she's, she's talking about, she actually has this phobia that stems from an extremely traumatic experience. Like, oh, oh my God, I can't. I can't imagine going through something like that and it was almost like it was it was almost like un- unbelievable like it was like so bad that it was it was difficult for me to to even even believe like that's just crazy it's crazy to remember how evil this world is and how evil some people are in it because you know at the end of the day I don't know if she was telling the truth I'd like to believe that she wasn't lying to me but but it's one of those things that makes you realize that even if this person is lying to me and that was not an experience that she actually had it definitely opens your eyes to remember that that is a real experience that someone has had 
even if it's not her, even if she's full of shit, which I feel bad saying that, that that's like that she's lying or stretching the truth or whatever. I, I, I feel bad saying that, that it was hard to believe her. But on the same note, even if she was lying, it's not like that never happens to anyone because that, that is the world that we live in. That does that kind of thing does happen. Sex trafficking is a very real problem. And there are people out there that are very traumatized because they were in that sex trafficking world for a period of, of, their, of their lives. So things like that are like crazy, crazy to me. Um... Here in Las Vegas a, a, a little while ago, going back maybe two weeks, I'm going to say, some somewhere in that area two weeks ago, there was a a, a shooting inside of a, a Ross store. And it was, I believe it was, you know, I don't even really know the full story. I think it was domestic violence related. And basically this gunman goes into the Ross and he, he goes running through the store and he's like, he's shooting at... Like I said, I think it's domestic related, like maybe his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-wife, something like something to that effect. And he basically just goes running through the store shooting at her. And so people start calling 911 and they're they're calling this an active shooter because he's running through the store just shooting. He's only trying to hit that one person, but obviously if you're in that store shopping and you're just like, this is what you're experiencing, it definitely has the appearance of of an active shooter. And that, that Ross is close to uh, one of my friend's houses. And so she was telling me that after that happened, she went into that store, uh, you know, a couple days later or whatever. She went in and was looking for clothes for her kid or, or whatever. And just kind of all out of, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, just got super stressed, super nervous, super upset, like worried that someone was going to come in shooting. And... Uh, and, and she just said she she just ended up having to leave couldn't even finish shopping there because it was it was too overwhelming in that in that moment and since that since that time she said that she probably will never go back in that store again because it's just she wasn't even there when it when it actually happened when this shooting happened but it's just the thought of being in that same location you know I was at um, the route 91 harvest festival here in Las Vegas uh, last year on October 1st which was, uh, you know, the site of the, uh, the, the mass shooting here in Vegas, 58, 58 deaths when the dude on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay just opened fire on a crowd of 20,000 people. Mass chaos. I've never seen anything like it. And that experience for me was traumatic to me, and, and I, I can relate to this friend of mine and her not wanting to go back to that Ross because... I don't ever want to go back to Mandalay Bay or the Las Vegas Village, the site of that shooting. Like a couple times, I just happen to see Mandalay Bay from the freeway. Like I get, I get stressed out if I'm driving past it. It's just, it's just one of those things. Like that's, that's how humans are. You know, we we experience some type of trauma or we learn of some type of trauma, and then if we're any any number of things can trigger that experience in your mind and, and make you remember or make you think about that and, and get you all stressed out just like you were on on the day that that was there and I'll be honest with you for me um, on that day on October 1st like 
in that moment, like I just kind of, it's almost like autopilot. Like I just did what I did to get myself to safety, to get other people to safety, whatever. I did what I did without even really thinking about it or questioning it. I wouldn't even say that I was like personally in fear in that moment because fear was not, fear was not known. That was not the emotion. It was more of survival mode. And looking back now, knowing that I was there, that's the fear that comes in now after I'm now safe. And that's how trauma works is that your mind takes a while to process those things and realize that you were actually in a traumatic experience. You don't realize it so much in the moment. It's difficult to explain. I had no issues being down there in that moment other than, you know, trying, like I said, trying to get out, trying to get other people out, whatever. But now I can't go back even though, so now it's like my my anxiety is stronger now if I end up back in those places or if I end up in a crowd or things like that. My anxiety is stronger now because of that experience. But in that moment, I wasn't just like, you know, sitting down fetal position, crying, trying, you know, wishing I wasn't there. You know what I mean? It's, it's it, like I said, it's, it's difficult to explain. And if you've been in some type of traumatic experience, maybe you can relate to that, that it's in the moment that you were in that, in that situation, experiencing it, you might not have felt those anxiety fears at that time, but over time now you don't want to be back in that situation and you avoid things that remind you or put you back in that situation. One of my kind of most unusual or strangest or uh, odd phobias, uh, I've never, I've never liked, uh, I've, I've never liked sleeping. I've never slept well. This goes back to at least my middle school years, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, somewhere around there, middle school, early high school. I, I remember having a lot of difficulty in high school and definitely in college and then into my 20s, like pretty much the extent of my uh, memory. Uh, I've never liked sleeping. And, you know, there's there's a number of different things that cause that or a number of different things that I don't like about sleeping. And, and it's, it's to a point where I would describe myself as being hypnophobic, which is a, a fear of falling asleep. I absolutely hate the feeling of falling asleep. There's a lot of different things about sleep that I don't like. I, I don't like that feeling. Like I said, the feeling, the feeling of falling asleep. I don't like uh, the darkness. And I'm, I'm going to come back to darkness in a, in, a, in a second here. I don't like um, the lack of consciousness and awareness. And it causes me to sleep very, very lightly. I wake up from anything. I toss and turn all night. I, I get up several times a night. I have a really hard time falling asleep. I, I have to make myself be so tired that I just sit down on, on the couch and watch TV and end up falling asleep on the couch or whatever because I can't just I can't just be like, all right, it's time to go to bed and, and go lay down and, and turn the lights off and close my eyes. Like There's no way that that works for me. So it causes a number of it causes a number of issues for sure. Uh, number one, I, I sleep on my living room couch probably 
80, 85% of the time, you know, most nights I don't, I don't sleep in my own bed because I don't like that feeling of laying down in bed and being like, all right, it's time to go to bed. I'm more successful at falling asleep when I'm, I'm sitting doing something else like watching TV or doing something like that. And, and just being so beyond tired that I can't stay awake anymore. That's the way that I fall asleep. And then I only sleep, you know, four or five hours a night. Like I said, that's kind of been that way for as long as I can remember. There's a few experiences in my life that uh, that increased the severity of that or the, the significance of that on my life. Um, for whatever reason, I suffer from a lot of nightmares. And I know nobody likes nightmares, but think about how often you have a nightmare. I was doing just a little bit of research on this, and I think the average average adult experiences a nightmare that they consciously are aware of maybe once every two months. So every 60 days. So take that, think about yourself, think about it, think about the last time you remember like a true nightmare that you know that you woke up sweating from, scared to be alone or scared to be in the dark, you know, you hear noises when you first wake up and you get just kind of that terror, feeling of terror for a few for a few minutes. It's, it's a lot more common in children than it is in adults, but everybody still experiences them and, and uh, they come from a variety of different things going on in, in your mind, different experiences that, that you have, different fears that you have. If you have, if you've been exposed to some type of trauma, you, you probably have nightmares related to that experience, um, maybe a little more frequently than, than average. But like I said, the average adult is, is one nightmare or one nightmare experience uh, every 60 days. It comes to about six times a year, which isn't overly common if you think about it. You might even be less common than that. You might be more common than that. But think, like I said, think about yourself. Think about how often you have those those nightmare experiences. I have, I have that experience uh, probably five nights a week. I would guess, five times a week, twenty times a month, which comes out on average, you know, two hundred and forty nightmares a year. Versus the average, like I just said, is six six a year six versus 240 that's a big difference i'm way above average in the in the frequency of nightmares for for an adult and i don't don't know why i can't i can't really explain that i i do know or i have read some research that uh, personality disorders increase the frequency of things like nightmares and and therefore increase the frequency of not sleeping well or not liking sleep or not wanting to sleep. You know, I can be up for 24 hours, 36 hours, almost no problem. Like I, I, get, I get tired or I feel tired. You know, I feel tired most of the time, but I would rather, it's to a point where I would rather be tired than sleeping. I'd rather just go through my day being tired. And I'm, I'm, that's just life. At least it's life as I know it. I, I mentioned darkness uh, a little bit ago. And yes, I admit it, I'm afraid of the dark. <laughs> um, 
it's one of those like one of those embarrassing fears that uh most adults don't have that's a common childhood fear i have nightlights uh all over the place uh but here's what's interesting to me is that that fear of the dark of the darkness is surrounds my bedroom or where i'm going to be uh where i'm going to be sleeping it I can walk through the rest of my house in the dark with no problem. I can go outside at night with no problem. I can drive at night, no problem. I don't have any issues when it comes to that. It's not that I get stressed out being in darkness. I think it's the idea of sleeping in darkness almost. And I mean that, obviously, I think that's part of uh, the hypnophobia of being afraid of, of sleep that uh, if I lay down in bed and I'm going to try to go to sleep, I have to have a TV on. I have to have, I have a, a actually a really cool nightlight that I like. It's a, 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 I don't even know how to describe it. It, it projects uh, onto the walls and the ceiling in my room and it's blue and it, it, it's supposed to, uh, it's supposed to look like uh, you're underwater so I have this light, it sits on the floor, and it shines up onto the walls and the ceiling in my room, and, and it, there's motion and blue lights, and, and it looks like you're at the bottom of the ocean looking up at, at water around you, like the rippling effect and stuff like that, and it's, it's a super, super calming, uh, super, super calming thing that I, I really like, but I can't sleep without that. I have to have that on, or I have to have TV on, or some type, some light source. I can't just lay down in, in that pitch black environment. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know like where that came from or why that is. You know, I used to work graveyard third shift, you know, overnights. I did that for a while. Uh, so I don't know if that was part of it that I, I, my body got used to and accustomed to sleeping during the day, you know, where there's ambient light and, and that's obviously very different from sleeping at night. So it's almost like my body got turned backwards and, and it never normalized. And especially having, you know, issues with, with nightmares, issues with waking up all the time. Nobody likes waking up from a nightmare in the dark. You wake up from a nightmare, it's the first thing you do. You turn on a light. So I think when I have such a high frequency of nightmares that maybe that's a big part of it. I don't know. But yeah, I'm one of those people that can't really can't really make fun of people for their fears because that's a that's a pretty childish fear, you know. That's that's common in little kids. It's not common in adults. I just did a quick Google search. I searched for how many adults are afraid of the dark, and there's some uh, clinical psychologists that estimated that fear of the dark is actually very common. But you know, a lot of people might not admit it. He says a uh, 11% of the U.S. population is estimated to be afraid of the dark. It's interesting to me because I didn't think it was gonna be gonna be that high. Like I said, it's something very common with with kids. I don't know where eleven percent. I don't know how he comes up with that number because I feel like a lot of people would not even share that. Like, say you're doing a survey or whatever, and uh, a lot of adults, like I said, would be embarrassed by that. I think I know I am. I I I would never admit to to being afraid of the dark and and. Like I said, for me too, it's not it's not really a fear of the of the dark. It's the fear of trying to sleep in darkness. Uh, so kind kind of interesting.
with this fear of uh, sleep and nighttime and darkness, you know, people always want to know, like, what would I experience as a child that maybe caused that or, or led to that? And I don't think it's anything. I think I think a, a, a driving factor might be uh, the borderline personality disorder that people with BPD get stressed out when they lose control of a situation. You know, a big part of BPD is is having control over your consciousness, your mind, your awareness, your uh, things like that. Not necessarily control of your surroundings. To a degree, yes, but mostly it's controlling uh, your own emotional responses to stimuli. And people with BPD, especially when they learn about it and they learn about uh, how to treat it and how to take care of themselves and how to try to minimize these random outbursts or these random episodes and instances of uh of problems associated with bpd when you learn how to deal with those things one of the things that you learn about is is self-awareness and uh being introspective you know introspective being aware of your own emotions your own mind your own thoughts things like that and so a big part of of falling asleep is is a, a major loss of that control over your own mind and you know i go through I go through every day really struggling and really working hard to to control my own mind and my own thoughts and 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 emotions and things like that. So much more consciously than a normal person would because of the fact that I have that uh, that disorder. So and that's a big that's a big part of of that of that issue of falling asleep. I think is that that loss of consciousness and that loss of awareness. And of course, when you add in the frequency of of nightmares that uh that causes some issues with with borderline personality disorder when you try to control those emotions an overpowering or overwhelming emotion of fear because once again people with borderline personality disorder they feel emotions and they experience emotions on a much greater intensity than a normal person so think of how scared you might be when you wake up from a nightmare think of how stressed or anxious you might be you know how quickly you turn on the light now take that and multiply it by a hundred that fear becomes like unimaginable and overwhelming and that's like five times a week that's miserable it's like when i when i try explaining that it kind of i don't know maybe it kind of makes a little more sense of why i have fear of falling asleep i, I don't know i don't know so oh, i can't believe this we're already coming up on an hour so anyways i Really quickly wanted to talk, you know, in the beginning I talked about how I've been working hard to be a little bit more consistent, a little bit better at, at pushing out episodes a little more regularly so that you can predict and know when the next episode of Third Degree Mind might come out. Uh, like I say, I try to do this on a weekly basis. I can tell you right now, and I'm, I'm just going to be upfront, it's not going to happen uh, on a weekly basis for at least a little while. The next episode is going to be a little ways out. So next week... Saturday, August 25th, I'm going to be leaving Vegas for a two-week vacation. I'm going to be riding my motorcycle back to Wisconsin uh, for Harley-Davidson. So uh, I'll be in there for Harley-Davidson's 115th anniversary, uh, which is over Labor Day weekend. I won't be back in Vegas until around September 8th. Depending on how things go, I may try to push out an episode September 8th or 9th. That's kind of going to be a, a, a goal, but more realistically, 
I'm going to say, if you don't hear anything around there, look for the next episode around September 15th. Mid-September uh, is, is what I'm going to be looking at for the next one. So that's a couple weeks from now. One, two, three, four weeks. So that's about a month. So hopefully by putting that out there, there won't be any disappointment when there is no episode next week. I'm not going to lie and say I'm going to get one out next week. I know I'm not going to get one out next week because I'm going to be traveling. So, hopefully that trip goes well. Hopefully my life somewhat normalizes mid-September so that I can get uh, another episode out. In the meantime, I want you to reach out, share some phobias, share some feedback on this episode, share some experiences of your own. I want to keep talking about this idea of phobias. I do have a couple more that I want to share uh, and talk about, but uh, I'm running out of time. I'm trying not to make this significantly over an hour so we're gonna we're gonna cut this in a minute uh if you need anything look us up on facebook you can send me an email borderline 750 at gmail.com however the better way to contact me is definitely through facebook i definitely check that more i'm definitely on facebook more than in my email so if you have facebook utilize that subscribe to us on the apple itunes store like we talked about follow us do whatever you gotta do I hope that uh, I hope that you got something out of this episode, and I hope that uh, I can talk to you again real soon. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. I hope you have a great couple of weeks. Pay attention to the Facebook page. I'll try to post some stuff up on there. Stay engaged that way, and we'll try we'll try to uh, try to not give the appearance that third degree mind has disappeared because that's the last thing that I want to do. Third degree mind has not disappeared. We're alive and well. Thanks for being a part of that community and that family. That means a lot to me. So that's going to do it for today. Hopefully this was worth your while to listen to. And I'll talk to you again real soon. In the meantime, shoot for the moon. And even if you miss, just remember that you'll land among the stars. Take care, everybody. Hey, it's Jay, creator and host of Third Degree Mind Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I wanted to close really quick by reminding you that Third Degree Mind is produced primarily for entertainment purposes and is not intended to treat or diagnose any mental illness and is not intended to replace clinical psychiatry. I am not a licensed therapist or physician, so if you feel that you need mental health treatment, please always seek that appropriate care in your area. If you're feeling actively suicidal, please call 911 or take yourself to an emergency room. If you're in the U.S., you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255 or contact them using their online chat service at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And once again, they are available 24-7.